0: Good morning church family. Uh, Just a little note as well, this coming Wednesday um, we're going to gather as well at half past seven in the church and it's really going to be an open time for folks to share um, just a Bible passage that resonates with you. It might be a verse, it might be uh, a passage if you'd like to share on what is either your favourite Bible verse, passage, something that struck you would love for you to be here. And also, if you received church emails yesterday, you will have got an Eventbrite link um, to our Tea and Testimony night. Please do sign up for catering purposes. If you don't receive those emails and you would like that link, please speak to the folks on the door. <coughs> so we rejoin John here in Chapter 5. And after this, we're going to break for a couple of weeks. Uh, Nigel Heath, our moderator, is going to be preaching uh, on Palm Sunday next week then we have our Good Friday communion service here in the church at seven o'clock, and then we'll be back in God's world on Easter Sunday for that wonderful triumphant celebration of the resurrected Jesus, and then we will be back in John's gospel in three weeks time. I've really enjoyed this passage this week. I've really enjoyed looking at it, and I found throughout John that that my knowledge and my understanding of Jesus and who he is and what he did as he walked this earth just grows and is expanded. And there's a couple of things I want to highlight as we start this work. Again, I don't have three points. I'm just going to walk through these verses to verses because there's a lot in this and I think it would be helpful for us to get through. So two things just to start us off from our first five verses. The first of that is that Jesus is in Jerusalem again. So Jesus started um, in Galilee. We saw him go to Jerusalem for Passover uh, in chapter 2. He then went out to the Judean countryside. And then he made his way back to Galilee, of course, through Samaria, when he met the woman in verse 4. He then took some time, went to Galilee. Uh, We then have the healing of the official son in there. And after that period in Galilee, he now returns to Jerusalem again. We don't know which festival it was. It's not particularly important. Um, but Jesus makes this point of going to this pool when he gets to Jerusalem. So Jesus is doing quite a lot of traveling here, quite a lot of, of journeying on the way up and down. And he comes to this pool, this place of people with many diseases and disabilities, where they wait for the troubling of the waters, because uh, apparently healings happened in this pool. And Jesus goes and he walks in that crowd. The second thing you might notice is, you may think Robbie missed verse 4, or you may be reading thinking, where on earth is verse 4? Um, there's a simple reason for it. Verse 4 isn't in our earliest manuscripts. It doesn't appear at the end of verse 3 and verse 4. It doesn't appear until 400 AD. There are, If you have a King James, it will show up. But you'll notice it in the footnote. There's an end of verse 3 and into verse 4. But there are thousands and thousands of Greek manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts. And the way that we arrive at this incredibly reliable text that is Scripture is by taking them and comparing them. And through all of that process, it was found. I'll read them for you. So it would be in addition to verse 3 and verse 4. It reads this. Paralysed, and and they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. This was put in as a footnote. It looks like they're trying to explain what happens in verse 7. The stirring of the water might be completely true. It might be a footnote. We don't know. It's not particularly relevant. But as we come to this, again, another encounter with Jesus, I think there's three things we see of this man of Jesus. I think we see something of his knowledge, something of his compassion, and something of his power. So we'll start with the first of those, shall we? In verse 6, his knowledge. And it simply reads, When Jesus saw him lying there, I uh, I knew that he had already been there a long time. Jesus displays for us, doesn't he, his divine knowledge. He knows what this man's situation is. He knows that this man has been there 38 years, maybe on and off, maybe just coming at the stirring of the pool, we don't know. But this man had spent year upon year upon year of coming to this place hoping to get better. He was paralyzed and he was unable to walk and I wonder how many of that, how, how much of that time he sat there utterly hopeless. Utterly hopeless of the, the fact that, that his situation may never change. Ever hoping with this little glimmer of hope for a miracle. But Jesus knew his situation And this isn't some kind of one-off where we say, how did Jesus know it if he wasn't told it? Because we're seeing this picture built up, aren't we? We're seeing Jesus, as he meets that Samaritan woman, know things about her he has not been told. We see him and Nathanael and his seeing of Nathanael before he physically sees him. We're beginning to see this Jesus that although fully man is also fully God and knows things that he is not told. We see this display of the wonderful knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And what that means for us is that Jesus knows us and he knows what kind of person you are. And this person that knows you perfectly, knows you intimately, more intimately than anybody else, Ever will. He knows you inside and out. He resonates with and knows every feeling you have ever felt, every thought you have ever had, and everything you have ever done. Those beautiful words in Psalm 139 you know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. And the reality for us is the more that we grow in our knowledge of Jesus, the more precious this becomes to us. The more we build up the character of Jesus and what he is like, the more important the fact that he knows all things is important to us. And what is quite remarkable, and the second thing this leads into, is Jesus' compassion. And what's remarkable is, even though He sees you, and even though He knows you, despite all of that, He loves you. And this morning, if you are in Him, you are forgiven and you are redeemed to the Savior of this universe. Knowledge is great, but knowledge on its own is fairly um, obsolete, For us to say we have a knowledgeable God. We good? Sorry, okay. Um, Wouldn't really mean very much for us. Want me to use this? Um, Wouldn't really mean a huge amount for us. But we don't just have a knowledgeable God. We have a compassionate God. Jesus chooses to go to the pool. Just as he chose to go through Samaria. He didn't have to. It wasn't just cutting across his path. He didn't stumble upon it. But he knew exactly and precisely what he was doing. He was going to this pool. And he was going to find this man. And you'll notice the question... That Jesus asked him, Do you want to get well? And the man's answer was not, Oh, yes, please. But actually, the man's answer was an excuse. And I think it's a sign of how difficult and how long this man's circumstances have been difficult for. Because sometimes, isn't it true that difficult circumstances are easier for us to deal with than the thought of change into better circumstances? I think this man has become so used to his problems that they were normal for him. That he didn't even think Jesus' question was worth answering. And do you know what? The guy didn't even have to respond to Jesus' question. Because in response to that description of this man's sorrow, Jesus acts in an instant. Verse 8, get up, pick up your mat and walk. This healing isn't in response to anything of this man, And it, it isn't in response to his... Um, Uh, how religious he was, how faithful he was. This man doesn't even know who Jesus is. But it looks like Jesus just healed him because of how long his situation had been miserable for. In other words, it came from Jesus' compassion, not this man's faith, not this man's righteousness. And we read at least nine times in the Gospels that Jesus was moved with compassion or pity we don't have a savior that sees our struggles and our difficulty and says i'm really sorry about that that's a shame i'll I'll pray for you sorry but we have a savior who does something and did something and continues to do something about it so not only do we have a, a, a jesus who knows you perfectly but he is also moved, and beyond just the point of resonating with our misery and the things that the struggles that we can face, he is also compassionate towards us. He is not heartless, but he is compassionate to us in the realities of this sinful world. because he is a sympathetic high priest for us. And we come then in that power because we have this this knowledge, this compassion. Both of those are great. But if he doesn't have the power to do something about it, what does that matter? Well, we see that his power is immediate and his power is sovereign. Verses 18 and 19. Jesus said, 8 and 9, sorry. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked When did he do it? At once. When he ordained it to be right, Jesus did it. When he speaks, these diseased muscles, bones that were decaying, that were disformed, obey. And they obeyed at once. This is John just magnifying for us the power and the sovereignty of God. We see it in the healing of the official son. We see time and time again, as we will continue to see in this series, of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a complete knowledge in Jesus. There is a heartfelt compassion in Jesus. And there is a sovereign power to do something about it in Jesus. And this is how we get to know Jesus. This is how we build relationship with Jesus. We meet him here. We meet him here in these written, alive words of Scripture. We meet him here as he encounters this man. And as we saturate ourselves in this, as we saturate ourselves in the very words of God, our thinking and our minds become shaped towards the thinking Of that saviour. So we have this. Immense display of Jesus. We have this incredible reality. Of who he is. And then we come to the problem. In verse 9. John writes for us. The day on which this took place. Was a Sabbath. Uh oh. We're thinking about how magnificent Jesus is. How happy and utterly perplexed. This healed man is. And John says this took place on the Sabbath. And I can't imagine the scenario of this man who has picked up this sleeping mat, slung it over his shoulder, is finally healed. Jesus is slipping off. And the Pharisees stand there and go, not today, mate. You can't do that today. So that's work. You can't pick that up. You're not allowed. It is the Sabbath the law forbids you to carry your mat. You've been coming for 38 years. You are miraculously healed, utterly gobsmacked, but just sit down until tomorrow. We can't do that. Sorry, it's not acceptable. What is the problem? The, the problem is eh, not in what I'm about to explain, but the Old Testament tells us through eh, primarily in the Ten Commandments as we start that, that work is forbidden on the Sabbath. And that work, as we read in Exodus 28 and 9, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. And the assumptions made that this refers to paid employment. But as we begin to to look at some of the manuscripts of the Pharisees and the rabbis, they had 39 classes Of work, which for them was basically like a hedge they built to make absolutely sure nobody could possibly work. Let's make it clear Jesus did absolutely nothing wrong because Jesus could not and would not break the law. And one of their rules in their 39 classes was taking or carrying something from one place to another. So they began to come up with all these rules and all these things because they felt it was their duty to protect the sabbath and in itself there was nothing wrong with that desire to obey the scriptures but what they did with it was poor here's some examples for you to look in a mirror or a polished stone or into the water was forbidden and and the reason for that was if you were to look at it and you were to spot a gray hair you might be tempted to pull it out and if you pulled it out it was classed as work because it was a form of reaping any form of hair removal on the sabbath was forbidden. This one's interesting. You couldn't wear your false teeth because if they fell out, you'd have to pick them up and put them back in. That was classed as a form of work. Some of us are struggling with the first two. (laughs) You could eat radishes on the Sabbath, but you were warned against dipping them in salt because if you dipped them in the salt for too long, they then became pickled. And that was Sabbath breaking. So there was genuine rabbi conversations going on about how long can a pickle sit How long can a radish sit in salt before it begins to pickle? What boring conversations. In 1992, there were three apartments in the orthodox suburb of Tel Aviv in Israel. And they went up in flames. And as they burned, the tenants went to speak to the rabbi to ask whether phoning the fire brigade on the Sabbath would violate the Sabbath law. Because you can't use a phone on the Sabbath. Because it involves breaking the electrical current. Except in emergencies. But in the half an hour it took for them to find the rabbi. And for the rabbi to say yes. Their apartments were gone. And the Sabbath forest sets up this stage of of confrontation and conversation that follows. Jesus is under no illusion whatsoever as to what he is doing here. He knows that his actions and his words, everything he is doing, is is all fitting into the plan and the purpose for his reason for entering this earth. Jesus did a number of things on the Sabbath, and this healing is one of them. And in all the Gospels, we read of these disputes of the Sabbath between Jesus and and the authorities. There were sharp disputes. This was something that for the Pharisees, they were utterly set on. There was going to be no deviation from this, because we are right. And that's why they were so, it's why they were so toxic. It's why they were so difficult conversation. Because these guys just were not going to move. And Jesus knows fine well what he's done. And Jesus is almost as if in this furnace, that the... the that his identity is being forged in the eyes of people, that his glory is shining out and his purposes slowly but surely are being revealed. And we find ourselves almost, almost like at the beginning of the Easter story. Well, I guess that's the incarnation of the birth of Jesus. But we see really the first time when these guys are getting really, really annoyed at him and killing Jesus seems to be on the cards for the first time. But Jesus didn't just heal this man physically. Jesus doesn't just heal him with no intention of dealing with his soul. He wasn't content on this random miracle and leaving this man in his ignorance. But as we find in verse 14 later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Jesus had no desire to leave this man Where he was. Jesus walked away. He left the crowds in verse 13. This place was filled with sick people, and no doubt the people who looked after them. If Jesus had stayed, This would have turned, after healing this one man, it would have just turned into this carnage of people miracle-seeking. And that wasn't the purpose of Jesus' visit. So what's the issue? The issue is simply that Jesus is more concerned for the man's holiness than he is his hell. He has healed him to make him Holy. Stop sinning. Sin no more. Jesus is saying that I've healed your body. I want to heal your soul. I've given you a gift. It's free. You didn't earn it. You weren't good enough for it. But I chose you freely and I healed you. And now live in this power is what he's saying to this man. Let this gift of healing, this gift of my grace, be a, a vehicle on the ways to your holiness. And he warns them. He warns them, don't turn away, don't mock this. Don't make some kind of idol out of the fact that you can now walk. Don't embrace sin, because if you do any of that stuff, you will perish. But he's saying, I've healed you that you may be holy, that you may stop doing evil. So where does all of this leave us? It leaves us with a foretaste of eternal wholeness. Now that COVID restrictions are disappearing, I don't know if you've noticed that Costco free samples are back. Free samples in most places are probably back. You ever bought something because you've had a a wee go at it? You ever tried somebody's lawnmower? I thought, I quite like this one, so I'm going to upgrade and buy that one. You ever had a free sample and bought something, especially in Costco, utterly ridiculous that you didn't need, but the free sample was good? Just that little wet of the appetite, that's exactly what we have here. We have this little foretaste. We have this wet of the appetite of what wholeness looks like. And the implications are huge for the diseases and the disabilities that we deal with today. Jesus walked into a huge multitude of suffering people in verse 3. And he heals just one man. And he disappears before that man even knows who he is. And he leaves hundreds, hundreds diseased and disabled, unhealed in front of him. And then he finds this man in a quieter setting and he puts all his focus on holiness and says, sin no more. But the point of of it is this. As the word became flesh in Jesus and as he dwelt among us, we receive foretastes time and time again of his healing power. Because there comes a day when there will be full healing of all his people of all diseases and all disabilities, and it awaits the coming of Jesus. The aim of this, the aim of this foretaste is for us a call to faith and a call to holiness. Most people in our reality that suffer from some form of disability will have that disability until the day they die. And until Jesus comes again, all of us will die of something. A few are healed. We believe absolutely and categorically in the miraculous. But even though Jesus has the power to heal, we do not yet see that final day of perfect wholeness. But all of this ministry of Jesus points to it. All of this ministry of Jesus and the grace and the compassion that he poured out on people points to the day when we will be in the presence of that saviour. We expect God to heal and we meet that expectation when we pray. We never come praying downhearted or pessimistically, but we come with expectation, but it is not the rule. See, Jesus left hundreds unhealed at this pool of Bethesda. And the one man that he did heal didn't even believe in him. And that reality for us is that as we await Jesus' return, just now we all meet him in our brokenness. And we receive the power of his forgiveness so that we might pursue holiness and godliness. We do not know the struggles that many people have. But Jesus does. Jesus knows you. Jesus sees you. And despite that, he is compassionate towards you. God works. God doesn't just work six days of the week. God has no days off. And the reason for that is so that we might be whole and that we might find rest. When Jesus is perceived to have worked on the Sabbath, because his father works, as he says, from that moment he sealed his fate. Here is the blasphemer. Here is the one that thinks he is equal to God. Who is this man? Let's just read verses 16 to 18. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. It didn't take very long for him to get to this point, but that is where we're going to leave it this morning. I hope, friends, that you know that wonderful Savior, that Savior that is all-knowledgeable, That is compassionate and that is sovereign. And friends, if you don't, I invite you to consider Jesus, to consider this man that in the next couple of weeks, in this run up to Easter, that we will come to mourn the loss of, but yet, and remember, but yet also celebrate his victory over death and over sin. I ask you to consider because there is nothing more important for us to consider. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you sent your Son. We thank you that in your Son we see you. We see your character. We see what you are like. We thank you that you are full of all knowledge and wisdom. We thank you that you are sovereign over all things. And yet with all of that, you are compassionate towards us. We thank you, Lord, for this story, for this reality of that powerful Jesus. Would you help us in these days to draw close to you? Would we draw close to you in vulnerability, in our brokenness? Would we lay everything on our hearts at the feet of your cross because you are able to bear our burdens? We exalt you this morning. Oh God. Amen.